You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual So I'd never heard of Lee Chatfield until a couple of days ago. He is a Michigan GOP state representative. He is a Republican. He's part of the Republican majority that controls Michigan's legislature that is running the place, running Michigan into the ground. That's what Republicans do. They don't think government works. So when they get in charge of government, they do all they can to prove it doesn't work by throwing monkey wrenches in wherever they can. And like almost all dick-having and not dick-having Republican elected officials in state legislatures, Lee Chatfield is an anti-choice, anti-abortion extremist. Right now he's trying to push through the Michigan state legislature a bill that would criminalize procedure used in almost all second trimester abortions that then would leave other options for women who needed abortions in their second trimester that were a lot more dangerous for the woman that would imperil the woman's health. Just another anti-choice Republican elected official asshole. What brought him to my attention and what made the news is his wife, Stephanie Chatfield, came out last week in a long Facebook post about the fact that when she was a teenager, she had an abortion herself, that she chose to have an abortion. After allegedly passing out somewhere at a party and being raped and then finding out three weeks later she was pregnant, she didn't tell anyone. She didn't tell her boyfriend at the time, her on-again, off-again boyfriend at the time, a guy named Lee Chatfield, that she would later marry. She didn't tell her parents all by herself. She went in the first trimester and had an abortion, chose to have an abortion. And she came forward to talk about this because someone was threatening to out her. Somebody knew that she had had an abortion when she was a teenager and her husband is running for reelection and somebody was threatening to out her. Now, here's how I feel about outing. When it comes to gay shit. I've talked about it a lot, but I think this applies in all cases. Outing is a brutal tactic that should be reserved for brutes. And I don't think the families of elected officials are necessarily fair game. Whoever was threatening to out Stephanie Chatfield about the abortion that she had alone and desperate and without much support when she was a teenager shouldn't have gone there, shouldn't have done that. So I don't think it was fair that this was done to Stephanie Chatfield because she happens to be married to an asshole who would like to deprive other women of the choice that she was free to make when she was a teenager. But now that her story is out there, now that she's talking about her story, I think it's fair game for the rest of us to talk about it and comment on it. She wrote in her Facebook post, your desire, addressing the person threatening to out her, to see this story go public emboldened me to do something I should have done years ago And no matter the intentions of anybody wishing to see this story go public, this I am certain of, God meant it for good and will glorify himself through this, through this experience, through her choice, through being outed for it. And here's the takeaway for Mrs. Chatfield, for Stephanie, about the abortion that she had. I was ashamed and I was scared. And this was the worst decision of my life. To tell you the truth, I desperately wish that I had the courage as a teenage girl to accept and welcome my child into this world, but I didn't. And I made a decision that I've thought about and regretted nearly every day since it's haunted me. I knew what I did was wrong at the time, but I never imagined the weight and the guilt that I would carry as a consequence. 
And now, Stephanie Chatfield, by dint of her personal experience, she supports her husband's efforts and the efforts of other Republicans to make abortion illegal, to deprive other women and girls of the choice that she made because she regrets the choice that she made. This is a leap that people who had the opposite experience don't make. What Stephanie Chatfield is saying is, I regret my abortion, therefore, you shouldn't be allowed to have one. You don't hear, you never hear people who've had abortion say, because I don't regret my abortion, you should be required to have one. Or the choice that I made that was right for me must be right for you and right for all because it was right for me. You don't see people on the other side make that logical leap. I have regrets, therefore you shouldn't be allowed to make this choice. I don't have regrets, therefore what? Dot, dot, dot. Therefore nothing. Make your own choice is the argument people on the pro-choice side make. And the fact is that the overwhelming majority of women who've had abortions do not regret their decision. You can go to plos.org and you can read Decision Rightness and Emotional Responses to Abortion in the United States, a longitudinal study. And this study tracked 667 women who'd had abortions at 30 facilities all across the United States of all ages and races and had abortions for all sorts of different reasons. And what it found was that 95% of all respondents, quote, reported that having the abortion was the right decision for them. I understand there are people out there who regret having had an abortion. I don't want to see anyone have, an, as a pro-choice person, I don't want to see anyone have an abortion that they regret. I don't want to see people having abortions because they don't feel like they have any other choice or because they feel alone or scared or they can't reach out or they fear being sex-shamed or dumped or judged. That's not a free choice. But to make the leap from I made the wrong choice or the wrong choice for me to I support my husband's efforts to deprive others of their, their own choices, of their own free will, of their own capacity to make their own decisions and make their own choices and then live with the consequences of their own choices and their own decisions. That I can't support. That looks like attempting to make yourself right with God by punishing others or depriving others of the choice that was right for you at the time that you made it perhaps and that you feel guilty or conflicted about now, now that you happen to be married to an anti-choice extremist. In the best of all possible worlds, no one would get an abortion that they regretted. In the best of all possible worlds, no one would ever make any choice that they lived to regret. We should all live in that kind of utopia. And in the best of all possible worlds, young women who've been assaulted or young women who found themselves inconveniently pregnant for some other reason would be able to reach out to their families and to their on-again, off-again boyfriends and get their support and be able to hash that out and then make their own choice. That didn't happen for Stephanie Chatfield. And I'm against people depriving others of their ability to make their own choices. I'm against whoever it was that forced Stephanie Chatfield to come out about the abortion that she had, depriving her of her right to choose to keep that private thing private. And I'm also against her husband's efforts to deprive other women in Michigan and if she should ever make it onto the national stage, women all across the country of their right to make their own choices as well, including the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. And now your calls. And now after this, your calls. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am an early 30s mom who has been with my husband for almost 14 years. 
Uh, within the first four to five years of our dating, we started getting more adventurous. So we went into some uh, threesomes with girls, which escalated to foursomes with couples, which eventually escalated into cuckolding, where I would go out and fuck guys, uh, one of his friends included in that, record it, and come home and do whatever with him. Uh, I have a very low sex drive and he has an incredibly high sex drive. So we have a comprom ongoing compromise where we will do it every other day to keep him happy and not so cranky. And so that I don't feel like I have to do it all the time when I don't want to. Uh, the nights that we aren't doing it, he is usually masturbating once I go to bed, which is fine. Awesome. Do that more. That's totally cool. Um, on nights where it is time to do it, and I'm not particularly interested. Sometimes we will do something that we call se uh, sleep sex, where I'm essentially falling asleep while he fucks me. And then when he's done, I will get up and pee and go right back to sleep. He is incredibly adventurous. So I, while I'm not into those things, I will do things like water sports or scat play to be a GGG lady. That stuff's fine. He understands I'm not always into it. You know, but I kind of want to know, is this compromise of choosing to do it when I don't want to do it smart? Is it healthy? I mean, it's obviously okay for our relationship because it keeps him happy. I get a little resentful sometimes, but I wish he was a little more okay with not doing it so frequently. Um, I guess I just want to know. I'm trying to be GGG. I've been super GGG. And I just want to know if I'm being smart and healthy and doing the right thing, I guess. There's being GGG and then there's being a fully staffed up Thai brothel. And it sounds like you're more the latter and uh, like you've been bullied into it. You don't sound particularly traumatized by all of the traumatizing, potentially traumatizing things that you've been asked to do and sort of kind of consented to do. But what your husband is asking of you is way above and beyond, far above and beyond the call of mere GGGness. When I rolled out the concept of GGG, I also rolled out the concept of AFTF, which is a fetish too far. And I want to add a couple of other Fs to it for you. A fucking fetish too fucking far. Shitting. Scat. That is a fetish too far. That is not something that someone who also isn't into scat is, I don't want to say required because GGG actually doesn't require you to do anything. It just encourages you to be thoughtful and indulgent and considerate and not to rule out, you know, not to just throw down a no because you've never thought about it before and maybe to go somewhere with your partner to indulge them, to give them pleasure and see if that doesn't also redound to you and give you pleasure as Amy Muse has proven in her papers and her research that it does. But fucking you while you fall asleep, fucking you every other day and calling that not a lot of sex. That's a lot of sex every other day, particularly in a long-term committed relationship. That's a whole fuck of a lot of sex. If he needs this much sex and this much bananas off the wall, turn on the chest sex, you should, if you can, encourage him to find other sex partners who can milk him at the rate that he needs to be milked. I sound, listen to the tone of my voice, I sound more upset and more traumatized by what you're going through than, than you do. So uh, I, I don't want to you know, read myself into your situation, project myself into your circumstances, and then tell you that you have to feel about it the exact same way I would feel about it. But if I were in your circumstances, I would be 
insanely and deeply resentful and fucking exhausted. And I would start ruling shit out. Starting with shit, I would rule shit out. No more shit. Shit is for somebody who's into shit. Shit isn't for somebody who's a shit non-combatant, who's a shit civilian. No shit for them. No shit for you. And your husband has to get a therapist not to stigmatize or shame him for a high sex drive. It's a fine thing to have a high sex drive. There are people out there who do need to drain it every day, and they're not all men either. But to insist on a degree, a level, a rate of sex and a bouquet, a children's treasury of sex acts at the rate that he has is just unfair to you. You have done all of the compromising in this relationship sexually. And that is not okay. That is not fair. You can rule things off the list. You can say no to this, no to that, and still have a GGG card in your wallet that nobody can take from you. Because GGG doesn't mean do anything ever that the other person requests or demands or needs. GGG just means be open to and thoughtful about and maybe default to yes, but you can still play a no. You can still throw the no card. You can still say no. Fucking me while I fall asleep, unless that's something that you enjoy too. That's probably a no. Shit and piss, probably a no. Definitely a no with the shit. And you know what? I think that you knew I was going to say all this. I think you called in hoping that I would give you permission to say no to some of this and to dial this stuff back without having to view yourself as an inadequate sex partner or not GGG or not loving of this man and his insane demands. And I worry about that because you called in knowing that this is too much, knowing there's too much on your plate and everywhere else, knowing that you want less and you want to feel entitled to ask for less and to give less, but you needed me to tell you to do that. So you're in a relationship right now with a man where you do whatever he tells you to do, and you've turned now to a man, a dumb faggot with a call and sex advice podcast, so that I would tell you what to do. And I think what you need to do is what's right for you. And I think what I'm telling you to do is right for you, but you need to start looking inside and giving yourself permission to act in your own self-interest without some asshole with a dick telling you to do this or do that or to say no to this or to say no to that. Don't replace your husband's demands with my orders. Although I think you might want to err on the side of my orders because I think I'm just ordering you to do what you want to do. And I'm telling you what you wanted to hear when you called and I'm happy to. But just like he needs to get a therapist, not to shame him about a high sex drive, that's a fine thing to have, but to shame him potentially about the way in which he's treating you like a blow up high brothel. You need to maybe see a therapist to learn how to listen to the voices in your head. to That little still voice inside you that is saying, yeah, marrying someone doesn't obligate you to let that person take a dump on you or to take a dump on that person, except figuratively. Cause you know, when you're married to somebody for a long time, you kind of do take dumps on each other every once in a while, but not literal ones, unless that person is into that, which almost all people are not, and you are not. So get a therapist, both of you. Get a good sex-positive therapist that can help him find ways to channel his insane sexual energies in directions that don't always pull you along and don't create obligations for you and create also for you some passes. You get to pass. 
You get to say, no, I invented GGG. I thought of GGG. I have said no to things that I have been asked to do by my husband, not by some rando on a bus, although I've done that too. I've said no to them. You can say no in the context of a loving, committed, long-term, sexually off-the-hook, fun relationship and still be GGG. I have and I am. Hey, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old gay man in a monogamous relationship. I've been in my relationship for a little more than four years. Uh, We got together in college. He's only my second sexual partner ever, and um, I was his first and only Our sex life is generally pretty great, um, but I've recently been getting frustrated at how limiting it is in some aspects. Um, He mostly tops and I bottom, Um, and it's tough to get him to go down on me or rim me, and he also won't let me top him because he doesn't find it pleasurable at all. Um, We have tried. Um, I also have a higher sex drive than he does generally, and we work kind of different schedules, so... I frequently find that my only real option is my hand. Um, I really love him and I really love being with him, but recently I've been mulling the idea of asking him if we could open up our relationship to outside sexual experiences. So I did, um, and the idea made him really uncomfortable, really nervous, really anxious. Um, He and I are both longtime Lovecast listeners, and I talked through it with him, communicating a lot of the advice that I've heard you give other people, um, but he just could not seem to get past the idea that, one, I'm going to fall in love with someone else, or two, that I'm going to contract some kind of STI or HIV. Um, He kept saying he didn't know if he would be able to have sex with me while I'm having sex with other people because he would be too worried about that happening. Um, I assured him that if our relationship was open, that I would go on prep and practice safe sex. And I also told him that um, it hurt my feelings for him to say that a little bit because I think it insinuates that I don't care about my personal health enough to protect myself. But um, anyway, I love this guy. We live together. We've made a life together. And I'm not interested in leaving. We've even discussed getting married. But I really need to find a way that we can reasonably compromise on this because I'm not totally sexually satisfied. It might help if you went to your boyfriend and acknowledged that his fears are not entirely irrational, nor is it insulting of you or your character or your intentions for him to raise them. You could fall in love with someone else. If you were fucking around with somebody else on the regular, you could... Catch feelings for that person. Now, people who are not fucking around with anyone else, that also can happen to them. They can catch feelings for someone that they work with or someone that they regularly run into at a coffee shop or whatever. People in closed relationships sometimes fall in love with other people. You could also contract an STI, even if you were on prep, even if you were practicing safe sex, even if you were doing everything, quote unquote, right. There are certain sexually transmitted infections that All the prep and all the condoms in the world, unless it's a full-body latex suit condom, aren't going to protect you from. You could contract HPV. You could contract herpes. You could contract syphilis, potentially. Any of the skin-to-skins you could contract. So for you to be in an open relationship with this dude, he has to be comfortable with assuming a slightly elevated level of risk for STIs, as do you. You just have to be rational about that. And people who are in open relationships sometimes get really head up 
when you bring when when I say this, even though I'm in an open relationship, they get really head up when people suggest that perhaps people in open relationships are assuming a greater degree of risk for STIs. But it's just a fact. Of course, there are studies that show that people in open relationships, honest open relationships, are at no greater risk for contracting an STI than people in closed relationships. So a lot of people in closed relationships actually aren't in closed relationships. They just think they are. And if you're cheating and you think you might have got an STI, you might brave that out and not say anything and not start using condoms with your partner while you work out that gonorrhea problem because you don't want your partner to wonder why you're suddenly using condoms with them and then you expose them. I think that's why a lot of people in closed relationships are at higher risk when they get cheated on and the cheater can't level with them. Of course, in an open relationship, if you are fucking somebody else and you contract an STI, you can say so and you can protect your partner, which then mitigates for those elevated risks. But circling back to you and your question and your problem, the issues that your partner raised, the fears that he raised about how this could impact him personally, impact his health, impact your relationship, not irrational, not an insult. I sense your frustration. Your sexual needs are not being met in this relationship. You've proposed a solution. Open the relationship and you'll be content with his limited sexual repertoire. He has countered with no. You are at an impasse. One of you is going to have to call the other's bluff. You're 23 years old. You've been with this guy since you were 19 years old. You've had four years. You've put up with or you've enjoyed or you've indulged him for four years, four years of his very limited sexual repertoire, and you are no longer willing to settle for this. So are you prepared to go to him and say, we open it up, we deal with your fears, which are not irrational, Dan Savage told me, and we try to mitigate and we try to accommodate and I will be considerate, but we either open it up or I'm out or it's over because feeling sexually unfulfilled is not something that I'm prepared to do for 60 more years with you. So either we open it up or you open up and you expand your sexual repertoire and you push yourself outside your comfort zones sexually or you're going to have to push yourself outside your comfort zones relationally by allowing me to have sex with other people, by being in an open relationship. Pick your poison and then let him pick. And he might pick break up. This could be the end, and that might be for the best. Hi, Dan. One of my wife's closest friends is a gay man in his early 40s, and he's been seeing a man for about 10 months. At first, their relationship seemed to be working out okay. The new boyfriend is charming and well-spoken, and he claimed to be a doctor, and most of their relationship revolves around smoking pot and playing video games. Fast forward to a few weeks ago, and the boyfriend has an incredible story about how he has been offered an incredible, unbelievable job, and soon he will be a top diplomat meeting with world leaders. He claims the job to be top secret, and that his position hasn't been announced, so that's why we don't know about it. Of course, I thought, why is he talking about it at a birthday party in a public place? The new job is supposed to be high security, and our friend will need to quit his old job and move into a new apartment due to security concerns. Secondly, they will need to get married right away for the purposes of meeting high officials and politicians. The international organization will supposedly create a new job for our friend, letting him do whatever he wants. Of course, after hearing this, we did a little searching, and we know people at the hospital the boyfriend claims to work at. And, of course, there is no doctor there under his name. 
We did some Googling, and he has no academic records whatsoever, no paper trail, no website, no professional or social media profiles, which is not normal for a doctor or an academic or a diplomat. We happen to know another person who has worked at this international organization, and they said this would not be standard protocol. They would not require marriage, quitting a job for security reasons, and creating a job for a spouse is strictly against their rules. My wife did do some searching, and what records the boyfriend does have is a string of lawsuits. We have since learned that our friend has not met the new boyfriend's child or has ever been to his house or even seen the fancy car he claims to own. So the question is, we are convinced our friend is being conned and the boyfriend is a liar and perhaps some kind of con artist. But dealing with this is so far out of our experience, we have no idea what to do. Anytime some doubt is raised, the new boyfriend has some clever answer and our friend trusts him again. Our friend is really in love and is convinced this is a real deal, and he is convinced that a new and exciting life is right around the corner. I'm afraid that love and smoking dope has clouded his judgment. We are afraid that he will be getting into some kind of serious financial trouble or even worse. How do we tell him his boyfriend is a fraud? Yeah, who's going to break it to this guy that his boyfriend isn't Dr. Jason Bourne? It's going to have to be you. You have options these days. In the bad old days, you would either have to go to him personally and lay out all the evidence and shatter him, shatter his hopes, shatter his dreams, knock the scales from his eyes. But today you can create an anonymous email account and just start sending him all of these documents and he doesn't know where they're coming from or from whom. And sometimes that's the right option because somebody who's a pathological liar and a fraud with a string of lawsuits behind them may not take too kindly to the intervention of their boyfriend or Mark's friends and may retaliate against you, that there are risks here for you potentially. And it would be understandable if you did this at a remove, if you did this anonymously, tried to break through to your friend. If you don't fear this guy, if you think he's just an inept, lying, pot-smoking, video game-playing clown, then just go to your friend and lay it all out say have to tell you this love blinds we've all been there so not saying you're an idiot for not seeing through this guy but because we're not sucking his dick it was easier for us to see through him and that's why you have friends in your life who aren't sucking your boyfriend's cock at the same time you are so that if you're blinded by the video games and the pot smoking and the lies that there are people around you who can pull you up short and we are those people because we love you that's what I would do if I were you. And I say that as someone who once a million years ago dated a pathological liar and was taken in because I was so besotted. Unfortunately, none of my friends knew the guy. So because, you know, when you're a closeted gay teenager, you're not really introducing your boyfriend to your friends, particularly your much older boyfriend to your friends. So I didn't have that check. I didn't have those outside eyes. I didn't have those non-besotted, non-love-blinded, non sucking the dick of eyes. Your friend does. Your eyes. Your wife's eyes. Go to him. If it's safe, go to him. Lay it all out. If it's not safe, if you're really worried about this guy, if you've looked up these lawsuits and he's potentially violent or retaliatory and just drags people to court and files nuisance lawsuits when he's mad at them, 
That's what Gmail accounts are for. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you. It's a little bit out there, but I love your show and I trust you. So I feel like you're the guy to ask. Um, So recently I kind of came to the realization that when I'm having sex or if my boyfriend is going down on me and I think of one of my siblings, it makes it really easy for me to come. Not that I would ever want to have sex with a sibling. I've never felt that way. I've never like had that desire, but I kind of realized what it stems from basically when I was young, maybe eight, I was masturbating and my sibling actually walked in on me doing it. Um, He kind of, you know, joked about it and told my mom and uh, we kind of, uh, it was kind of a running joke, but at that time it was like very shameful. I felt really embarrassed and um, I just like never forgot that moment. It's been like seared into my brain forever. Um, But yeah, so I'm wondering, is this something that happens like a really terrible moment that could affect my kink or like my sexual desires? Like I find myself looking at incest porn. That's like something that I think is hot, but I still, I, I don't want to fuck my sibling at all. Like I'm very happily with my boyfriend and that's not an issue, but I'm wondering, is this healthy? Is this something that I should just put away, push it out of my mind and like avoid at all costs? Um, I've never told anyone. I don't plan on telling anyone. It's something that's like very personal, but it definitely does help. Like no matter what, even if I'm like pretty turned on, as soon as I think of that sibling, it's like instantaneous. I don't know why, but I'm wondering, is this normal? What should I do about it? We pulled the room here at Savage Love HQ and no one else has this fantasy or this go-to place when they're trying to get to that point of orgasmic inevitability. So based on our small sample size with this study, is it normal? No, 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 it's not normal. Is it unhealthy is a different kind of question. I don't know. Does it make you super sad? Does it leave you devastated? Uh, Does it negatively impact your ability to function, work, love your boyfriend? Has it harmed you in any way. I don't think it has. It's just this go-to spot, this taboo forbidden fantasy that makes your blood pump straight into your clit. And what do you do with that? I don't know what you do with that. And there are other people out there with incest fetishes who describe them the exact same way that you describe them. They sometimes look at incest porn, but they're not attracted to any of their actual relatives. That it's this hypothetical, taboo, naughty, transgressive thing that just... Their brain snapped onto at some point. And some people have uh, an event in their life that they can point to, like yours, where your brother walked in on you masturbating and then went and told your mother and you were mocked for this and probably experienced conflicting emotions around shame and power and control. Because really your brother was shaming you. And I'm sure he was masturbating constantly, but because you had never walked in on him, you weren't able to 
embarrass and humiliate him and involve your parents in it, this family dynamic around shaming you about masturbation, yeah, that could leave a dent. And apparently it has. Now, you could fight this for the rest of your life. You can keep this as a private secret place, a little secret garden that only you ever enter. You can fight it the rest of your life, try to push it out of your head. But I don't think that's very effective. And I've never really heard from anyone who successfully could do that without doing what I like to call the replacement. Don't fight it. Replace it. Because when you think about what's going on in your head erotically, when you think about this erotic script, it's not so much wrong. It's not a wrong ism so much as it's a wrong gasm that you're having that this taboo thing this transgressive thing this thing that you're not allowed or not supposed to think about or find sexy when you think about it give yourself permission to just throw yourself into it uh, that works for you that sends you over the falls that pushes you over the edge that drags you to the point of orgasmic inevitability and hurls you off it you may rely on this all your life. This may be that thing where you go all your life. Or if you can think of something that is comparably wrong, that doesn't involve your family, that works for you on the same sort of level around power and exposure and degradation and humiliation and transgressiveness, some other fantasy that you can cultivate, and I'm not sure what that would be exactly, that that fantasy could grow and supplant this one and become your go-to. Again, I can't assign you a fantasy. I can't tell you, think about this. Maybe this will do it. But you can get online. You can read a lot of pornography, read a lot of erotica, read a lot of dirty stories written by women for women. You can cast a wide net and see if something else doesn't just click once you're exposed to it, once you find it, once you masturbate about it once or twice. So that's a long-term plan to maybe replace this, to supplant it, this particular go-to fantasy. But in the meantime, I don't see the harm in you privately going there between your ears when you choose to, when you want to, when you need to. I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy. You've been doing it for a long time. You've never made a lunge at your brother and you never will based on the experiences of most people with these kinds of figurative incest fantasies. You're not you don't have literal incest fantasies about your brother. You don't want to fuck your brother. But there's something about dragging him in to your orgasm, the way he inserted himself into your orgasm so many years ago, interrupted your orgasm, that does it for you. Sounds like you had a shitty brother, actually, growing up. Sounds like you had a shitty, sex-shamey brother. Even if they thought they were being fun and sex-positive by just being chitty-chatty, humorous about it, and kind of a shitty, perhaps unintentionally sex-shamey mother, at least you got something out of it in the end. You got a button that you can push for the rest of your life that gets you to a place that a lot of women have trouble getting to. So there's an upside. <laughs> Enjoy. Hi, Dan and all of the um, podcast creators. Um, so I have kind of a difficult situation where um, my dad has dementia. We didn't realize until um, the beginning of this month when he was hospitalized suddenly for just like very strange behavior. And then within the course of, four days declined very rapidly. He has a type of dementia where he can't control his actions. And now he's a compulsive masturbator. Um, and it's really challenging to support my mom through all of this while she tries to get control over his assets and um, just sort of get their life in order. But I'm really struggling with how to 
make a connection with my partner sexually who has a penis and not think about my father who is constantly touching his own. It's really sad, but also funny and it's just there's a lot of mixed emotions there and I really love my boyfriend a lot but I want and I really want to be able to have sex with him eventually but I just I don't I don't know how to deal with this situation um I was hoping maybe you would have some insight it's so frustrating because I'm also really really horny but then I'm like thinking about my dad it's just it's weird it's really 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 weird I'm not going to shrink you. I'm not going to crawl into your head. I'm just going to give you a couple of practical suggestions on how you can ease yourself back down onto your boyfriend's deck. Number one, remind yourself. Just tell, Actually, I'm going to crawl into your head for a second. There are lots of guys out there, creepy guys, who've been doing creepy things with their penises the whole time you've been alive and for millennia before and there will be for eons after. I'm not saying your dad is a creep. Dementia is a tragedy. And I, I'm, I'm sorry for your dad, but you know it's creepy what you saw. Your dad masturbating and pulling his dick out and unable to stop touching yourself kind of squeak you out understandable but to leap from my dad is doing creepy things with his penis now because of this dementia because of this tragedy which is then stirred together with your grief and sadness and you're associating the sight of his penis perhaps with grief and sadness and loss and then to dump all that in your boyfriend's lap onto his dick that his dick is suddenly creepy and sad and symbolizes loss and tragedy too. It's a little unfair to your boyfriend and his penis, but the saving grace here is that you are horny. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to have sex with your boyfriend with his consent. And you're going to roll this out a few times, a half a dozen times without him taking his pants off. No penis involved. You're going to have oral sex. You're going to use toys, mutual masturbation, and he's going to do this for you. He's going to indulge you. You are going to then reassociate his presence between your legs with pleasure and orgasms and intimacy without his penis coming into play with his permission. Hopefully he'll be game for this. Hopefully it'll be fun for him. And then he can run off to the bathroom and fall out his dick and jack off or whatever he needs to. He can take care of himself a few times without coming himself and without dragging his dick out. Then the seventh time you guys are going to mess around. You do everything that you've been doing. He leaves his pants on for a while. He eats your pussy. You guys use toys or roll around hands. And then you put on a blindfold and he takes out his dick and you incorporate it back into your sex play, back into your body without having to look at it. And you form new associations new connections, and you begin hopefully to see his penis as pleasure and life and a future and gain as opposed to loss and triumph as opposed to tragedy. And you carve a new groove into yourself. And then you keep using the blindfold until you can take off those training wheels, which is really what they kind of are. The blindfold's there to help you slowly reacclimate to all the good things penis represents or used to represent in your life as opposed to the sad and tragic things penis began to represent to you and in your life after what you saw your dad doing with his as a result of this tragedy that has befallen your father and your family. My sympathies. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight guy in the East Coast, and I'm in this group chat with my three best friends from home, from high school, and one of them is always sending us pictures of his shit, and he's making a lot of fart jokes and poop jokes, and we all kind of engage in it. We always, we always do that for fun and it's funny 
Um, but then sometimes we'll talk about our sexual experiences. And this one friend hasn't had quite as much sexual experience as the rest of us. And two of us will talk about eating ass or, you know, tossing the salad or whatever, just as kind of like something that we've done. But the one friend who's always sending pictures of his shit and talking about his shit and basically things out of his asshole, he'll like recoil in disgust. He'll always kind of say, but that's where shit comes from. Like, how could you put your mouth where there's shit coming out of? And we try to explain to him like, oh, you kind of forget about it in the moment. It's not that gross. Human bodies, you know, during sex, it's just like you take it all in, you know, you forget about it. And we try to get him to be more comfortable with his body because we have a feeling he's a little uncomfortable with his body because he sees his body as just like a place where awful things come out of. So is there anything that we could say to him that might get him to accept this? Or do you think it's just a lost cause? You could, I suppose, tell your friend that you don't eat ass when there's shit coming out of it for the same reason you don't cross streets when there are cars coming down them. But why? Why? Why are you in a regular chat session with someone who sends you pictures of his shit and talks about his shit? I don't think eating ass is disgusting. I don't think what you guys are doing is disgusting. What he does is disgusting. Sending pictures of his poop to three friends from high school? Ugh. I I don't want to work on him. I want to work on you. Why are you still in contact with this person? It would only take one picture of one turd for me to block somebody. However well I know them or knew them, whatever good times we shared in high school, that would kind of be it. So why are you so invested in your relationship with this person that seems to consist primarily of him sending you pictures of his turds and then him sex shaming you about the gross and disgusting things you do? Let it go. Ignore him. Who cares if the gross shit pick sharer thinks that it's disgusting of you to put your tongue in some woman's hole? To hell with him. Both her holes. To hell with him. Never going from back to front, of course. To hell with him. Ugh. A few weeks ago, I picked up the New York Times, which I pick up every Sunday, every day, actually, on my front porch. And it was Sunday, and the New York Times magazine fell out of it as I dumped it onto the table. And there on the cover was one of our longest reigning guest experts here at Savage Love, a cover girl now of the New York Times, <laughs> Mistress Matisse, in an article on the cover for an article written by Emily Bazelon called Should Prostitution Be a Crime? A Growing Movement of Sex Workers and Activists is Making the Decriminalizing of Sex Work a feminist issue. Joining me by phone today, the author, Emily Bazelon, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and one third of the hosting team at the long running podcast Slate's Political Gab Fest that you ought to be listening to. I listen to it every week. And also in the studio here, Mistress Matisse. Thank you both for jumping on the phone, Emily, and for coming in, Matisse. Thank you, Dan. I love being here. So glad to be here. Thank you. So, Emily, I, I want to ask what would normally be asked at this point. What inspired you to pick up this issue? What, what inspired you to write this story? But it's going to look a little self-serving if I ask you that question. <laughs> I was going to say, well, you inspired me, Dan. So actually, I guess there were two parts to my inspiration. Um, one part was um, Amnesty International last summer started moving toward recommending a policy in favor of decriminalizing consensual sex work around the world. 
Um, and I had frankly never really thought of this issue before as a human rights concern. So that was intriguing to me. And then the second thing that happened was that you introduced me to Mistress Matisse, um, who had um, a set of concerns of her own. And I'm sure, Matisse, you can describe them yourself. But yourself, but you were um, trying to help um, a woman named Heather in West Virginia who very much wanted to stop doing sex work. And I was just interested in that, the idea of someone like you who um, are doing this very much um, with your eyes wide open and consensually um, feeling very sympathetic to someone in the industry who was in such a different position. So, yes, I was trying to help Heather. Heather was actually the second woman in the last year that I was trying to help uh, who did not want to do sex work to get out of sex work. And the first one was a woman named Camilla who had been part of the now-canceled TV show uh, Eight Minutes, which was a very exploitative and bad television show where they were taping sex workers without their consent and doing other miscellaneous bad things. So, And Camilla really wanted to exit sex work. And so the sex work community and I kind of rallied around her and supported her a lot for uh, a good part of a year. And then I heard about the issue with Heather, and it just really caught my heart. So I transitioned into helping Heather and... uh, was looking around for someone to write about that. I always think there's a parallel here between being pro-choice, being pro-legal consensual sex work, because as someone who's pro-choice, I don't want people to be having abortions under duress. I don't want people to be having abortions that they don't want to have, because that's one of the best arguments against legal access to abortion services is people who deeply regret them because it wasn't the choice they wanted to make. It was a choice that was imposed on them. And I've always respected people in the sex work community like Matisse who want to help people get out of it who don't want to be doing it. And that's something that doesn't really get discussed much, that reality that there's so many people in the sex work community who help other people exit it if it's not what they want to be doing. It is very common. Um, unfortunately, we are the only ones doing it that I know of because all the corporate anti, anti-trafficking orgs that you hear about, they get a lot of airtime. They do not provide services to people who want to exit sex work. They do nothing. They do not provide shelter. They do not provide any kind of financial backing, no medical, no child care. They do nothing. All they do is lobby. That's their function. It's left to people to, you know, whatever social safety net still exists in their area, uh, that's all they have. So, Emily, as you began to work on this piece, and, and uh, you know, kudos to you because the piece is amazing and you're a terrific writer. It was just for me and I think other people in sex work land, and the, it was shocking and welcome to see such a lengthy treatment land in such a prominent place, the cover of the New York Times magazine. Can you tell us about what working on the piece was like and what you learned working on the piece and how it went through the channels at the New York Times and landed on the front page of the magazine? Thank you so much. First of all, I worked really hard on this piece and I super appreciate that. Um, you know, I did, um, there was a, there were a lot of ups and downs in the reporting of this story, but I never had a problem convincing my editor that it was a story worth telling or that it was a cover story. And in fact, um, Jake Silverstein, who's the editor of the Times Magazine, was very ambitious about the photos for the story almost from the start, he really wanted to depict um, as many sex workers as we can find who were willing to pose for photos. Um, And we didn't want to out anyone. We were very careful to make sure that people could turn their backs or wear masks if they wanted to do that. But really, the goal was just to show the range of people doing this work in like their ordinary dress as their regular selves um, as a way of, I think, like just 
taking some of the sensationalism and the titillation out of this subject. I mean, I think for you guys, none of this is like at all surprising. It's sort of shrug worthy. But for a lot of our readers and, you know, and in some ways for me, this was like new territory. And so um, that was something the magazine put um, a tremendous amount of work and resources into it. Um, and uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the story. So what was a, a revelation for you? What did you learn working on the piece that you didn't know before that that changed your mind maybe about sex work and decriminalization? I think the main thing that I learned was that it's such a spectrum of people doing this work for all kinds of reasons. And I think I don't, I didn't have a whole lot of like preconceived notions, but several years ago I spent just like a few hours um, reporting and writing a piece for Slate about, um, you know, the sort of classic question, should we legalize prostitution? I didn't even know at that point that legalization meant something different from decriminalization, which if you know anything about this debate is like a key point. It was in the middle of the Elliot Spitzer scandal. Mm -hmm. And I was drawn to what's called the Nordic model, which is this idea that you don't arrest people, mostly women and transgender people who sell sex, but you still arrest the men who buy sex because you're thinking of this as a harm you're trying to eradicate. And I just like, without thinking about it very much, was kind of drawn to that as a middle ground. And what I learned working on this story is that the way that model actually plays out in Sweden and Norway, which is where it's been the law for a number of years, is is very much punitive toward women and transgender people who sell sex. They don't get arrested, but they get deported. They lose custody of their kids. Um, they can't turn to the police for help. And so they, they lose are. Um, they lose income. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what we think of too, yeah. certainly. But uh, here in the U.S., we have full criminalization. So we have both sides of that where the, the clients are afraid and we're afraid and it drives us underground and into unsafe spaces and unsafe practices because they're so punitive and criminalized. Here, so yeah, they have some of that. Yeah. The, the women don't technically get the women and trans people who are selling sex don't technically get arrested, but everything else that can bad happen to a sex worker happens to them anyway. Right, and that mattered a lot to me because um, you know one of the big still unanswered questions I have, and it's unanswered because there's so little good research on this topic. That's in itself kind of shocking. But one of the questions I have is like how many people are in which category of sex worker? In other words, how many people are like you, you know, eyes wide open, this is your profession, you're building a business. How many people are trafficking victims on the other end of the spectrum? And how many people are in the middle? They're doing this out of some kind of economic hardship or because they don't have a lot of other choices or they're coming out of foster care. There are a lot of people in that category, I think, but we just don't know how this breaks down. And so, Without knowing the answer to that, I felt a lot of, and as a sort of civilian, like a know-nothing in this world, I felt a lot of concern for women who are not is in control of their lives as you are. And I wanted to know what was the legal model that would help them the most. People who, you know, are not necessarily freely choosing this in the sense that like if they had every option, this is what they would pick. And it really does seem like the evidence that decriminalization helps women and trans people like that not just in the U.S., but in developing countries like India and Thailand that have a big sex industry, that was both surprising to me and ultimately um, persuasive. So what you're saying is decriminalization actually helped people in that space, people who were maybe doing sex work not of their own free choice, but because circumstances imposed it on it and they had a limited number of choices and this was one available to them? 
and decriminalization exactly. of those women. Yeah, there's, there's no circumstance in which someone who's having a difficult time, maybe who's short of money, needs a place to live, adding criminalization of anyone in that, in that circumstance does not help that person. It just There's no circumstance in which injecting police into a kind of unstable person's life makes things better. It just doesn't. Ever. Maybe injecting social services, maybe injecting right. a social safety net, maybe injecting a basic minimum guaranteed income. That might help protect people from really? doing work that they don't want to do, that they find traumatizing, which isn't just sex work. Yeah, I mean, it can be all kinds of jobs. And yeah, it doesn't seem like rocket scientists to, to be like, yeah, let's give some people some services and then they won't have to make this maybe choice that they don't like so much, but seems like the best available one to them. So in Emily, in interviewing sort of mainstream feminists or attempting to, I believe Gloria Steinem wouldn't speak to you for this article. Is that right? That's right. And that was over a long period of time in which um, for months I was emailing her office assistant and um, asking to talk to her. And she just didn't want to talk to me um, about this topic. Uh, right. So, so that it, is true. I did, <laughs> I did speak to other feminists, not her, though. So most of the feminists that I know are kind of pro-sex work feminists. But there are other feminists, not all older feminists. Lena Dunham comes down on the don't decriminalize side of this debate. But it tends to be older feminists, people I respect, Katha Pollock, Gloria Steinem, who are against decriminalization – What's the best characterization for their view of this? You know, so it's always hard to generalize, but I'll try anyway. The basic idea is that prostitution is a source of sexual inequality. It harms women. This is mostly a model which just thinks about women as being the prostitutes and men as being the clients. Doesn't make a whole lot of room for men who sell sex or really for thinking about trans people, just to like explain that. Mm -hmm. But that's the basic idea that the sex industry is inherently exploitative and that it's just bad for women. And so you don't want to legitimize it. You do see women who get arrested as victims. So feminists who are in the camp we're describing don't want women to be arrested as prostitutes. They want to change that part of U.S. law, but they do want to keep criminalizing the purchase of sex and most of the consensual sex industry because they see it as harmful um, and they want to eradicate it. They're, one kind of catchphrase for this view is end demand. Which, okay, that's never going to happen, first of all. What I would call these kinds of feminists is carceral feminists. And these are feminists who want to use the power of the state to arrest and jail people who are behaving in ways that they don't like. I don't think that's really a feminist view myself. I think looking at women only as objects who are acted upon by men, how is that a feminist view? You're, you're kind of, those women are kind of doing to us what they say the men are doing is they're robbing us of any agency, of any kind of nuance or power over our lives and saying, no, no matter what you say, this is what's happening to you. And so you are this object and this man is acting upon you and we have to make him stop using the power of the state. There's been movement in the direction of decriminalization, there was a big announcement last week. Do you want to share it with us, Emily? Yeah, Amnesty International um, issued a final recommendation in favor of um, decriminalizing consensual sex work around the world. It's um, a policy that's been a long time in the making. Amnesty had an initial vote of this among its delegates last summer. It was very controversial for all the reasons we've been discussing. And, um, and Amnesty continued along with this policy and released reports about sex work and the law in four different countries. One of those countries is Norway, which has the Nordic model we were talking about before, where you don't arrest um, people who sell sex, but you still arrest people who buy sex. And 
the report about Norway really in, at great length and based on extensive interviews and research shows how punitive it is toward women and trans people who um, engage in sex, in sex work. They don't get arrested, but as we were saying before, there are all these other negative consequences for them. And um, Amnesty also directly tackled the issue of trafficking, which comes up a lot in thinking about these different legal models and found that in Norway, the law was, um, in Amnesty's view, really making people more um, vulnerable to trafficking. A lot of women who sell sex in Norway are immigrants and they're getting deported. They're not really getting help. You know, we're going to have to wrap this up, but before we go, I really want, you know, we've been talking about decriminalizing sex work, talking about the agency of sex workers, talking about the Nordic model and the, the punitive sort of focus being shifted to the buyers of sex. Can we say a word here for the buyers of sex? In my experience, in my column, the letters I get from men who are curious about buying sex are almost always asking me how to avoid buying sex from someone who is being trafficked, buying sex from someone who isn't consensually doing sex work. And yet when we talk about the buyers of sex, they're always the villains. And they tend to sound like the villains even when we talk about decriminalizing sex work. It still seems to place the buyers of sex as the bad guys. And I don't think that's always the case. Of course, I think some are assholes, but some of everyone is an asshole. It's almost never the case. I mean, there are a small minority of, of people who want to buy sex who are bad people. Um, and Heather met up with one of them, but that is the tiny minority. The vast majority of guys are nonviolent guys who are going to be respectful of the rules and, you know, work within the conditions that the, the worker has set and it's fine. And some of them might be really even super awesome. I mean, everything I've done for the last year, all the places I've been, all the work that I've done has been funded by my clients who think what I'm doing is awesome. And, and what you've been doing is reaching out to and helping some women who want to leave sex work and yes. doing activism around yes. making it possible for, you know, the antis, the people who are opposed to decriminalization, the people who want to see the punitive measures ramped up or made worse or stay in place, like you said, Matisse, don't do a lot of work to actually help individual people get out of sex work. They don't do anything. They provide no services whatsoever. So actually, my clients, certainly in my case, have given thousands and thousands of dollars just in the last year to help several individual sex workers transition out of sex work. And the anti-orgs have not done that. Can we look forward to a follow-up article in the New York Times, Emily, on whether buying sex should be a crime? I mean, I guess that's kind of covered in your piece when you dismantle the Nordic model. But what about the buyers of sex? And are they all monsters? You know, we've had all people who sell sex are victims. We also have all people who buy sex are monsters. Maybe that needs to be unpacked. That would be fascinating. That would be fascinating. Well, that is a totally interesting question. And I will say I did look to see if I could find any good research about this um, to kind of generalize beyond you know, your, your experience, um, Matisse, like, what do we know about men in this category? And I just can't find any decent research on it. So if someone wants to do, start doing some good, solid, well-conceived ethical research, um, I would be interested in writing about this, and I'm sure other people would too. And in the meantime, I definitely plan to keep continuing, to, I plan to continue covering this issue. I think it's really important. The article is, Should Prostitution Be a Crime? A Growing Movement of Sex Workers and Activists is Making the Criminalization of Sex Work a Feminist Issue by Emily Bazelon, the May 5th issue of the New York Times Magazine. Thank you so much, Emily, for jumping on the phone today. Thank you, Emily. Thanks so much for having this discussion, and it was great to hear your voices, guys. Hey, Dan and company, 39-year-old straight guy living in the suburbs of Atlanta. 
monogamously married almost 12 years. I've never stepped out of my marriage or any other monogamous commitment ever in my life. But lately, on a couple of occasions, my wife has wondered aloud whether I'm seeing someone else. I've told her that I'm not. But she says I spend an awful lot of time looking at my phone, and she can't help wondering what that's about. I've offered twice to let her go through my phone with me there or without. But she's an iPhone person, I'm an Android person, and I'm very savvy and activist about my data privacy. And she worries that if I am fucking around, I'll have the evidence buried so deeply that she won't stand a chance of spotting it. I really want to clear the air about this. I've got a terminally ill parent right now, and I really need my wife's support and understanding. Uh, this lack of trust is really throwing a shadow on what's already a pretty stormy time in my life. And I wonder if you or the tech savvy at-risk youth or a listener might have some ideas or are uh, seeing something that I'm just overlooking in this situation. I don't want to pour poison in your ear, but sometimes when someone just insist that you must be cheating on them, I get suspicious that perhaps that person is cheating on you and they're projecting or they're doing that best offense is a good defense thing or best defense is a good offense. I can never remember which way that's supposed to go. I don't know what's up with your wife. She clearly has infidelity on her mind. You can just let her look at your phone, but if she would rather at this moment when you are needing her love and her support continually rake you over the coals for no fucking reason because you're not cheating on her, maybe she's not someone that you need in your life or deserves to be in your life anymore. Get, if you can find the time, if you can find the bandwidth right now while your father is ailing, get into couples counseling and unpack this. You might also want to make the, you can have access to my phone Mutual, that you can have access to her phone and she can have access to yours. Because, and maybe this is just me projecting my shit onto your relationship, every time I was with somebody who was constantly at me about cheating, that I had cheated on them or wanted to or was going to or was flirting with somebody, they already had. And it was just their shit that they were dumping on me, accusing me of being guilty of or capable of doing what they themselves were already guilty of or had already done. You might want to run that to ground too with the therapist that you two are going to start seeing together just as soon as you can. Hey Dan, I'm a 20 year old woman and um, I've been in a relationship with a man for about two years now. I'm feeling really lost because recently I have not orgasmed in like probably two months and the reasons are that he doesn't last long enough or that he doesn't take enough time to give me foreplay or turn me on. And I've talked to him about this, and it's sort of been an ongoing thing throughout our whole relationship. But at what point do I like stop giving him chances? At what point is it just obvious that he doesn't care about me? At this point. At the point where you're calling sex advice columnists to complain to them that your boyfriend hasn't gotten you off, that you haven't climaxed in two months and he doesn't seem to give a shit, this is the point that you DTMFA, particularly when you're 20 years old and it's a relatively new relationship. You guys either don't click sexually or he doesn't give a shit. In either case, time to end it and move on. 
I'm a 30-year-old lesbian. My girlfriend is 37, and we live on the West Coast. We've been together for about three years. When we first got together, like, I didn't really want to get married and found it sort of irrelevant. But I was willing to say that if things went well and we settled in a place where it was legal, I'd be fine with filling out the paperwork for our legal protection. Now, of course, it's legal all over the states, and I'm a little older, and I'm starting to actually see the appeal of being invested in a marriage with somebody that I love. My girlfriend doesn't really have strong feelings about marriage, but then again, for most of her life, she thought it would never be an option for her. So she'd like to get married and have a wedding. We're not engaged yet, but it's been discussed, and we both kind of want to see how things are around the five-year mark before actually marrying. So all that, my problem is that I can't help but see a marriage between two women as ridiculous. And I don't know if it's like the last remnant of my internalized homophobia, because I'm otherwise comfortable and happy being gay, and I have really great supportive family and friends. And I don't know if I just, like, have a stereotypical fear of commitment, and this is how I'm rationalizing it, but I can't really seem to get over it. I don't know if it's because back when it wasn't legal, I would watch women have these commitment ceremonies and then watch those relationships fall apart, and it just seemed really sad. There are two things going on here. There are two issues that you're wrestling with. Do you want to be married? Do you want to be, potentially in a couple of years' time, your girlfriend's wife, her immediate next of kin? Do you want that power and that safety and that responsibility? And it sounds like you do or you might. And that's really what you know. we talk about in the gay marriage debate in the wake of Obergefell, in the wake of marriage equality coming to all 50 states. We have these arguments about florists and bakers and wedding reception halls and the bigots who seem to not want to sell flowers or cakes or host receptions for same-sex couples. And it really has shifted the focus away from being married to this other thing that maybe you don't want. Maybe you want to be married. You want to have a marriage. Maybe you don't want to have a fucking wedding. Maybe you don't want to have a goddamn spectacle. That seems to be your hangup. When you talk about what makes you uncomfortable? You went right to your friends who had big ceremonies and then broke up. You can be married without having a wedding, without having a reception. You don't have to have a fucking cake or flowers. You can access the powers, the responsibilities, the protections of marriage just by toddling on down to the marriage license bureau at City Hall and getting it over with in 45 minutes and then maybe popping into a restaurant with a couple of friends and having a bottle of wine. You can get it all over with. You don't even have to do that second part. You can get it all over with in a half an hour. And you don't have to have the potentially embarrassing, if it doesn't work out, wedding. You don't have to have the Broadway floor show of your love. You don't have to perform for people. You can have this be what it is for you guys. I get why it feels ridiculous. Actually, in my book, The Commitment, I talk about my own feelings of it being kind of ridiculous. I, you know, you know. I, I talked actually about watching two men in a dance competition ballroom dance together and how odd that looked. Two guys in tuxes doing a waltz because that was gendered in all the, my past exposures to it. It was about really a, a burlesque on male-female relationship dynamics and straightness. And then to see two dudes do it was a little like, wow, crazy. And I felt kind of the same way about two dudes at the altar. Like, wow, kind of crazy, unfamiliar. But that was about a lack of exposure. And now that I've been more exposed to it, I'm a little more comfortable with it, even the ballroom dancing part of it. And so, yeah, I do think it's not about internalized homophobia necessarily, but 
for older queers, and I wouldn't count a 37-year-old as an older queer, but let's round your girlfriend up to old and decrepit like me. For older queers, this was the sense that marriage was not for us. Not only wasn't for us, not only something you weren't allowed to do if you were queer, but something you escaped. Because for a lot of older queers, marriage was the trap. Because so many of us, particularly 40, 50 years ago, were under pressure to enter into marriages. So a lot of queer people married opposite sex partners that they couldn't love and only got to be queer people by escaping marriage. And so there was this association for a lot of older queers, particularly when younger queers who are now older queers themselves started pressing for marriage rights. So this was a betrayal of what it meant to be gay because being gay meant you didn't have to do that, that you were free from that. You can make your own way and make your own shit up. You still can make your own way. You still can make your own shit up and you can do it with out getting married. And you can also do it your own way and make your own shit up and get married. And that's just taking some time for queers to get used to. And maybe it's taking time for your girlfriend to get used to. But what I really think is going on here is that you guys are introverts. And for a lot of people, what we see of marriage in public is the weddings of extroverts who are performing it, who are putting on a big fucking show. And that's not for everybody. It wasn't for me and Terry, even though I wrote a book about it. It wasn't for me and Terry. We didn't have a big Broadway floor show of our love. We snuck away and got married quietly in Canada without telling anybody, not even my mom, much to her chagrin. You guys can do that too. So pull those two things apart. Do you want to be married? Do you want to have a wedding? You can do one or the other or both. Hi, Dan. I am a uh, 32-year-old married woman, and I um – and I have two kids with my husband. And when my husband and I first met, we uh, never really had that, like, super fiery, passionate, like, sex that I, you know, I mean, I wanted. But at the same time, there were so many other great qualities about my husband that I just, it was okay with me for a long time. And because he had so many other great things. He's an amazing dad. He's an amazing husband. Um, all of those things are great. Um, but sexually, um, I've just never felt that, like, connection and that fire and that passion that I actually have never felt it really before um, until recently. So uh, about six months ago to a year ago, we decided to open our relationship up. Mostly it was my doing. I wanted, I initiated it because I was really missing that um, connection, that sex and that fire. So uh, my husband was okay with it. He's really understanding, and um, we opened it up. And I, for the last, like, several months now, have been dating a woman who has been with women in the past. So I definitely was missing that. So I've been with this woman for the last few months now, and everything's been really great. And there's so much passion. There's so much fire, like, that I've never even experienced before. And now, all of a sudden, what was so okay with me before with having that part missing with my husband is not okay anymore. Like, I want that fire and I want that passion with somebody like my partner, you know. And so now I'm just in a spot where I don't really know what to do because um, we have two kids and part of me feels like maybe I should just keep on keeping on like I was doing for so long and finding that passion outside um, our marriage, which I have permission to do. Um, but I don't know if I want that. I kind of want it all in one person. And then part of me says, just 
you know, you know in your heart that this might not be the right thing and go separate ways. I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm just looking for your advice and um, what I should do because it is so complicated once, you know, marriage and kids and all that. So the thing that you say is missing from your life, that kind of intense sexual connection, that kind of erotic passion isn't actually missing from your life anymore. You have that right now with the girl that you're seeing, the woman that you're seeing. And so you can have that intense sexual connection, that passion, what's been missing from your life, and a partner too. But you have them right now in two different people, and you don't necessarily have to have them in the same person. And if you leave your husband with whom you have this strong and loving and mutually supportive committed relationship, if you leave your husband because you want to have all of that love and that commitment and that mutual support and sexual passion too in one person, there's no guarantee that that will last. Sexual passion and that kind of intensity, that new relationship energy that just have to devour each other sexually, that feeling, that almost always and invariably wanes. And you wind up potentially, if you leave your husband for this woman or some other partner to be named later, you'll wind up back where you were when you were with your husband, where the passion has dissipated, it's not as intensely experienced or felt, and hopefully what you've got now is Love, commitment, intimacy, familiarity, stability, all those other things that are really valuable. And right now you're discounting all this stuff about your relationship with your husband that sounds pretty great. You might not find that with someone that you have an intense sexual connection with. You could leave your husband who brings all that to the table for this woman or some other person where the sex is amazing and they could be emotionally abusive, emotionally distant, shitty relationship, shitty person. You just don't know. Right now it sounds like you kind of have the best of both worlds. You're able to have that kind of intense sexual connection in your life and have your husband and all the things that he brings to you too. Wouldn't it be great if you could, instead of looking at your husband and looking at your girlfriend and only seeing what your husband lacks to look at your husband and say, and think and feel I have everything I have in my life because of him, because he is selfless enough and giving enough and secure enough in our relationship that he can allow it to be open so I can have him and everything we are together and this other thing that we aren't together that was missing from my life. I can have that too because I have him. And if you leave him because he isn't that and never was that, all the things you have with him, you may not have again ever with anyone else. So think about it before you pull the plug because you want what you have with this woman. You want the way this woman makes you feel right now. You want that always. There's no guarantee that lasts. And there's a lot of evidence out there, anecdotal and otherwise, that it does not. Really think about it. Think about it before you make that choice. Right now, you have everything you want in two people. You win. That sounds amazing. The culture tells you you should only have that. In one person, you should want ideally in the best case scenario, you would have that from one person, but look at, listen to the calls on this podcast. Look at the advice industrial complex. Do you know how rare it is for anyone to find this with one person? That's why there's so much dissatisfaction out there in long-term committed sexually and emotionally exclusive relationships and or emotionally exclusive relationships. That's why there's so much dissatisfaction because it's rare for anyone to find everything they want to need in one other person. You guys are doing the open thing. You guys are doing the poly thing. You now have everything you want in a relationship because you have 
relationships with more than one person. Take yes from the universe for an answer. Don't turn the table over. The culture, the universe, don't listen to it. It tells you there's something wrong with you or there's something broken about your marriage or your relationship with your husband if he isn't all things. And that thing that the culture, the universe pumps into our head about our relationships inflates our expectations and sets us up for disappointment. You're disappointed in your relationship with your husband because it's not all things. And you worry that people may look at you or that you may even be looking at yourself thinking, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? Rather than looking at what you're doing now and going, this is what's right for me and what's right about us. That we can have each other and have the other stuff that we don't bring to the table for each other too. Don't look at your marriage necessarily as broken. Don't succumb to the cultural undertow. But that messaging, that messaging that tells you that you must have this in one person if you're going to do marriage and relationships right, maybe that's wrong. Not wrong for everyone, but maybe that's wrong for you. Hi. First, I want to say that I'm a weekly listener and I love your show and everything that you and the tech-savvy at-risk youth do. Having said that, I have an issue with the way and the advice you gave the black man who called in for episode 500. Namely, my issues with the phrase racist or not. The situation that this man described was racist, no question about it. And as a listener who happens to be black, it kind of disappointed me to hear you say racist or not. I also feel like with this incident that so deeply affected the caller, it would have helped to have a black person answer this because, again, as a black man, it helps me to get advice from another person of color who has the same experience when it comes to racial, racial situations. Hi, Dan. I also am a black man and experienced a similar situation in my 20s. I take a little issue with you characterizing his experience as victimization. Yes, I understand the first time this was dropped in his lap, it could have been shocking, but he did willingly continue this interaction with other folks. Now, we all know that people enjoy what is forbidden. He can take solace in two things. Either A, he provided non-racist people with an outlet for fantasies that would be very taboo in this politically correct world, or B, he helped to straighten out people that were truly racist by giving them the black dick that they so abhor. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. This is a response to the caller Uh, The gentleman who was an escort and had white women and men in cuckolding relationships call him uh, nigger and and talk about his nigger dick. I wanted him to know that that is something that happens all the time. Being raised in the rural South, I was as well. You are instilled with this fear as a black person um, from your parents about what white people can do. Our parents saw firsthand the terrible things that white people did to their parents and and their aunts and uncles and the racialized sexism that incurs in the South is, I mean, so common. When I was 16, I had a group of 40-year-old white men chase me off a street throwing rocks at me and telling me that 
if I was lucky, they'd lay me down and put a white baby in me. And, you know, again, when I was 20, had a guy whisper in my ear during intercourse that he was going to make me his slave mistress, like in the good old days. And it's something that white people in the South kind of think is okay, but is absolutely not. And the way you cope with that is by raising fearless black children who don't have this. So if they are unlucky enough to experience this racialized sexism, one day they'll have enough courage to jump up and say that is not okay and get themselves out of the situation instead of what happened to, you know, us where we have that fear that anything could happen if we don't abide. Dan was right something that happened to you and it's something that happens to a lot of us so hopefully it gets better and hopefully those fearless children are um so much better off by having you as a dad And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment, we love your comments. For a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. If you are listening to the version of the Savage Lovecast with ads, there is a longer ad-free version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at www.savagelovecast.com. That is where you find the Magnum Edition with more guests, more calls, no ads. SavageLoveCast.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Emily Bazelon on Twitter at Emily Bazelon. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. And quickly, before we wrap up this week's show, an email from a listener. Hey, Dan, I love your podcast. I would suggest you stop referring to the tech-savvy at-risk youth as such, however, as it's a stigmatizing term that labels them in an unfavorable way. I'd call them tech-savvy opportunity just a thought. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Julia, for sharing that thought. We are taking it under advisement. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that.